Man, it's good to be here. Um, my name is Ben. Uh, I've been involved with this church since uh, 2002. And uh, so, man, it feels like I've been here for days. Uh, but it's been good. It's been a lot of really good days. And God do a lot of really cool things with this fellowship. Um, I mean, this is a church that, I mean, Brian says all the time, we see people come and go and, and a lot of fresh faces all the time, which is awesome. And it's just really cool to see here where people end up, where people go, and what God's doing with their lives. And, and um, because I think, to be honest, there's been times where we're like, man, why is it, it's so transitional. Gosh, why can't people just, just stay and put roots down? But we've kind of seen it, man, God's kind of given us this unique thing to, uh, for some of us to stay and then a lot of us to go. And that's a good thing. Amen? And, and, and I think it's, we've kind of grown into learning that. And, uh, and I think once God kind of opened our eyes to saying, wow, we have this really sweet opportunity to send people all over. So instead of getting a little disgruntled and uh, why, why is that to be so transitional? Why is it so many young faces come and go um, to own it and say, man, this is a good thing. And we're, thank, we're thankful for God for what he's given us here to see people come into this and see people go out. Amen? So, yeah, um, I'm here for now. Thank, and we'll see what God has. I don't know. Um, let's pray, and then we'll get into this, get into this word in Ephesians. Your Father, thank you for this opportunity to dive into um, the book of Ephesians this morning. And so, Lord, we invite you to uh, speak to us, speak to our hearts. God, we ask for your spirit to uh, open the eyes of our hearts, to illuminate our eyes, to, to see these deep truths, to be changed by them, to be moved. And so, God, we pray that this, um, we wouldn't see this as a lecture. We wouldn't see this as just more information to get biblically smart. But I pray that we would see that we're, we have this opportunity, Lord, to interact with you, our living God, who gave yourself for us in our place. God, we just thank you so much for that truth. And I pray, though, you help me to, to speak clearly and to deliver your word um, as it is, as it is true. So, God, we love you, and we thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for these people. Thank you for our Pastor Brian that you have, uh, you have healed and are healing right now. We want to lift him up, and we pray that you continue to, to give him rest, to give him healing. And, Lord, we just are excited to see him, to come back in the full swing and to continue to serve this church. God, thank you for 20 years. What a blessing that is. So, God, I pray that we would have another 20 years and that we would have that much more to rejoice and so when that day comes and we see you face to face, Lord, that we could, we could just look back and say, wow, God, look at the years you gave us in San Luis Obispo. They were not wasted. They were well spent. They were well invested. And so, God, I pray for the people of this church that called this place their home, that we would be very purposeful with our time here in San Luis. God, we love this city, and we're thankful that you placed us here. We commit all these things to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, if you need a Bible, we have a stack of them on the wall there. Feel free to grab one if you don't own one. Take it. It's yours to keep. Um, go to Ephesians 1. Now, this is a, man, this is a thick, thick passage. It's a passage that uh, has, has been a bit intimidating for me to, to, to preach through. And, um, and I think that what has helped me to understand these deep things in this passage here, is to, is to look at what has God actually done practically in history that points to these truths that we see in this passage. And so I want to tell you a quick story about um, a king and give you a bit of a history lesson. Any history majors in here? You can correct me after. Just making sure. Yeah? None. Ha <laughs> ha. So you just have to take my word for it. 
Okay, I did my best. I did my best prepared for this. Okay, there's this king, this king named Astyges. We learned this from this guy named Herodias, who wrote a bunch of history throughout um, ancient times. And Astyges, one night, has a, has a dream. Has a dream that his daughter would marry this man named Cambyses. And Cambyses was a Persian. Now, Astyges was a Mede and part of the empire called the Median Empire. Um, and then another night, the same king has another dream that the child of his daughter in Cambyses would be named Cyrus. And this man named Cyrus would rise up to power and overthrow his kingdom, would actually bring in the Persian kingdom to overthrow the Mede kingdom. Okay, still with me here. Sure enough, this couple has this child, Cyrus. Came true. His name was Cyrus. And immediately, this newborn was called, uh, Astyges calls in his number one right-hand man, this guy named Harpagus. And he calls in Harpagus. He says, Harpagus, I want you to take this child out to the desert and discard this child. Put it to death because there's no way that this child can overthrow my kingdom. Being greedy for his power, sends this man out to the desert to discard this child. Along the way, Harpagus meets this family who just went through a miscarriage and just lost a child. And, and, and having compassion for this family, Harpagus takes the child Cyrus and gives the child to this family. And so, uh, out, of, out of just compassion, just not wanting to see them grieve, not wanting to see this, this infant be left in the desert. Um, and so this, this family, who they're herdsmen, they've raised this child over years. So years go by, and this family raises Cyrus. Um, and this, the, the stillborn child is brought back to, to the king, Astyges, and it's confirmed that the child is dead. And years go by. And one day, the child Cyrus is playing with a group of children. And they're playing this game of uh, kings and warriors and servants. And Cyrus takes on the role, naturally, as the king in this game. And so in this game, he's showing this great authority, great prestige, great power over these children. I mean, I don't know if your children do this. I'm just like, put him to death. Or I don't know. There was something like that going on. You know, I don't know if that would scare you as a parent. I mean, I might be like, yeah, right on, boy. Show him what's up, you know. And uh, I, sorry, I'm working through that. But, uh, but so you, this game goes down, and Cyrus is, is showing these, these characteristics of a king. And so the, the, and what, what uh, Cyrus didn't know is that he was actually playing with King Astyges' son. Astyges' son goes back to his father. Yeah, I was playing today with my friends, and we played this game, and shares a story. Definitely uh, gets Astyges thinking, huh, this is interesting. I'd, I'd like to meet this, this child. And so he calls Cyrus, and Cyrus is adopted father, into his, his courtroom, and starts to question him. Starts to ask, who is this? Um, who, who are you? Where are you from? Getting the, the history. And immediately, Astyges can see the resemblance, his family resemblance in Cyrus. And so it gets all the more suspicious of what what had may have happened when he was taken out to the desert. And then finally, but surely, the father of Cyrus, the adopted father, confesses that, yeah, I received this child from a man from your kingdom, and he's not my own. And, and immediately, I mean, Stygis is just overthrown with fury. He was betrayed by his right-hand man. And so Stygis the king throws his feast, and he invites Harpagus to sit, sit at his side, and feeding him a meal, halfway through eating this meal, reveals to him that he's been eating his own son. And so Astyges fed his, Harpagus' his own son to him because if you fool the king, the king will fool you. And this, 
and out of the, just the vengeance and the fury of Harpagus against his own king, can't believe that his king would do this to him, he, he just swore to, 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 to commit vengeance toward this guy. And so sides with Cyrus and sees that the boy Cyrus would grow up in safety and grow up and see that his Persian, this prophecy that he would rise into power would come to being. And so Harpagus played this role of, of helping him come into power. And then slowly but surely, that day came where, where the Persians rose up against this empire with the lead of Cyrus. And Cyrus overtook the Median Empire, starting with that empire. Now, where this has to, sorry, a lot of history lesson there for you. But where this has to do with the Jewish people, it's interesting to know, the Jews, all along this time in history, they have been thrown from empire to empire to empire. From the Assyrians taking them over from around 900 B.C. to 700. And then after that, the Babylonians took over that empire. And the Jews went right with them as slaves from here to slaves from here. And then finally, with Cyrus, where we see in history right here around 600 B.C., late 500s, we see that Cyrus leads the Persian Empire to overthrow the Babylonian Empire. And with that, inherit the Jews as his people slash slaves. Okay? Now... The crazy thing about this story is that we see in the prophet Isaiah actually prophesying about the man Cyrus, about this king, 140 years prior to him even existing. So I think I got some, I got some text real small. I hope you have glasses. Um, so listen to this. This is Isaiah. Um, he prophesying around 740 BC, year, 140 years before Cyrus even came to being. Listen to this, oh, Isaiah 45, 1 through 7. Thus says the Lord, his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue the nations before and to lose the belts of, of kings, to open doors before him, the gates that may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light. I create darkness. I make well-being. I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all. So Cyrus is literally named by God, 140 years before any of this comes to, comes to being. Just so, he, so people would look back at this story in history and say, God called it. And I don't think he's, he's like, he, God's saying, oh, I just want to come up with a cool name. And everybody would know I came up with a cool name. You know, like the parents that have that really unique name for their kids. And you're like, I know you're just watching Star Trek. I know you're getting a name from there. You know, it, it's not that. It's, it, there's more to it. There's more to it than just God saying, look, I named him. There's a purpose behind this naming. And we go on in this. And look at Isaiah 45, uh, 12 through 13. It says, I made the earth. God's saying this. I created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. And I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness. And I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Huh. Seeing a little bit of the mission here. And going on in Isaiah 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord and made all things, who alone stretch out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, 
and shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and the temple, your foundation, shall be laid. So at this point in history, the temple and Jerusalem have been leveled. It was destroyed in the Babylonian invasion. And so when God is prophesying this, he's saying, I'm going to use a pagan king, a Persian, who doesn't know me, and I'm going to use him to accomplish my will. I'm going to dirty my hands in sinful people, and I'm going to use them to bring about my ultimate plan through history. And so I love this because it's this beautiful combination of we see with a, a secular historian named Herodias giving us this history of the, how this little baby was spared through a number of circumstances and then comes into, into power. And then we look at scripture and we see the same names and the same histories being confirmed. But yet God's saying, this is my doing. I'm doing this. I'm doing this so that you would know that I have purpose in all that I do and my whole plan. I have purpose to use even the sinful actions of man to accomplish my will. And this, and, and personally, and among um, my, my friends, my coworkers, you know, when we work at this nonprofit, and we've asked ourselves this question, um, should we, uh, a faith-based nonprofit organization, work with non-believing groups that are doing yet good things, but yet maybe don't share the same uh, religious views and understanding of, of God and the gospel, though yet they're helping people and doing things that are close to the heart of God. And in the past, we've kind of felt like, man, maybe we should only work with people that, that are exactly like-minded. But I think that it, God is working on us. And I think even through seeing this, that God is choosing to use, work through a non-believing pagan to accomplish his will. I think we see that here. And so it just, it helps me to step back and ask, is it gonna, am I going to mess up God's plans by am, am I to only work with Christians or to only work with certain types of people? But I see right here, God is saying, no, my plan goes beyond. It goes into all of history. And all of the events of history are part of what I'm doing. Um, now, listen to Cyrus's response. In the years past, we've, um, we've studied ber- books like Nehemiah and Ezra. Remember those? Anybody around for those days? Studying those books? Yeah. Uh, and listen to how this book in Ezra begins. There it is. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Huh, there we go. Cyrus, king of Persia. You believe me now? Okay. The word of the Lord, by the mouth of Jeremiah, be be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia. The Lord stirred up Cyrus. For what? So that he made a proclamation throughout the kingdom and put it in writing, saying this. Thus says the king of, of Persia, Cyrus, the king of Persia. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build the house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Whoever is among you and all the people, may his God be with, uh, with him and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and rebuild the house of the Lord and the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by men of this place with silver and gold and goods and beasts and besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Wow. Just, I mean, just, just look at this big picture. Just step back and look at the, just the miracle of this child being spared and God bringing this child to this place of authority, overruling so many kingdoms. He, Cyrus conquered a, a huge amount of the Middle East and Asia at this time. He was the dominating force. And God says, 
I'm going to use this mighty king to accomplish my will, to set my people free because I am a redeemer. Not because Cyrus is great, but because Cyrus is going to be used by me to accomplish my will. And I'm going to free my people and rebuild this kingdom and give my people hope through this man who does not know me. It's just crazy. This is crazy, right? And, and we see, because you've got to ask ourselves this question. What limits do we put on the hand of God to work in our lives? I mean, a lot of times we're like, well, I hope this works out. Or I, I hope the Republicans get enough votes. You know, uh, you know we, we play these games and we miss the fact that, man, our God is in control. Our God, our, our Redeemer is in control. Not just a powerful force that has a will and that doesn't, doesn't involve himself emotionally in, in his love for us. It, it's not just that. And it's not just a sentimental God that just loves us but wishes he could do more for us. But we see in the gospel, in the story of God, we see a God who is redeemer, a loving God, combined with the powerful, the power to work and to will things according to his purpose. And his purposes are so good. Amen. And, 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 I, and I see that in this because it, I mean, even in verses like Proverbs, listen to this Proverbs, Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. I mean, I know we, we, we look around. I mean, some people can get so caught up in current events and what's going on over there and what's happening here. And, you know, you just freak yourself out. And, and, and now, okay, I don't want to get down on having compassion and caring about what's happening in the world. But when we push it so far that we, we almost push God out of the picture and, and act as though we don't know what's going to happen, we just, I think we do a lot of discredit to the story of God that we see throughout the whole Bible. And we're looking at, this is just one story of this guy named Cyrus. I mean, I could spend another two hours telling you about Joseph and the circumstances of his life that got him into place of power to, to, again, to to, to help his own family and God's people. I could talk to you about Nebuchadnezzar and how God used that pagan king to humble him and and to, to, once again, show his glory and his power. We could go on and on and on looking at the story of God and history and seeing how God has worked throughout all the ages. Now, let's go to Ephesians 1. Now that we've introed, and I probably have like five minutes. Okay, Ephesians 1. This clock's broken, so I don't know. We'll see what happens. Um, <laughs> I never forgot to say it. Um, okay, Ephesians 1. Let's start. I'm going to start in verse 9. Just to kind of put this in context, and we're going to go down to 14. Ephesians 1, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. In him we have obtained inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Whew! That's, this is the deep end, right? This is the deep end of, of when we look at the gospel. These are things that, that, that definitely say, okay, wait, what, Paul? Wait, 
Wait, what did you say? And, and this is where, like, this is where, like, guys like Peter, he says, some of you have read Paul. Good luck with that. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit deep. And even Peter admitting these things. So that's just like, let's all take a deep breath together and just, okay, the deep things of Paul. We're going to get into this. And, and hopefully, uh, my, my plan is, is that we look at stories like Cyrus, we could see that this is a very, this, this theology, this doctrine, these are practical things that God intends for, to be worked out in our lives, not to just fill our minds with knowledge. Congratulations if you got your systematic theology worked out, but I don't think that impresses the Lord. But what I do think is close to the heart of God is that when we see God's overarching plan to, to implement his redemption, and he sees that, that uh, inspire his people to take part in that, man, th- then we're getting close to actually seeing this, this kind of theology work out in our lives. And so that, that's what I want. That's my desire for our church. Um, because I think we've all had a fair share of just seeing things like this get blown into just lofty knowledge type things. And we just get a little bit sick by it. Or at least I do. And, it, and I'm not impressed. I just see a lot of pride. Which makes no sense. Because the message is that God is a, a sovereign God who's working and involving us in the plan. I don't understand how that makes us prideful. But it does somehow. Because, um, because we're weak. But... Okay, let's look at this here. Looking at verse 11 with me here. We've obtained inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to just be very blunt with this and, and get right to the point because I know you don't want to waste any time and neither do I. Um, we look at things like this and we say automatically, we have so many questions coming to our mind. And we say, okay, Ben, you're telling me that God is a sovereign God who works all things according to counsel's will. I'm not telling you that. Paul is telling us that. I'm affirming it with, with him. You're telling me that. Okay, Ben, just look around. Don't you see the hurt and the pain? And, and don't you see the cancer? Don't you see what's happening to our, our own pastor? Our, why would our own pastor have to go through throat you know, surgery if God is a good God? So either God is a, a good God that can't do anything about that. Or God is an all-powerful God that really doesn't have any feelings that involve himself. And so we ask these deep questions. And we say, how could that God exist? If we look around us and we see so much hurt and pain, how could a good God exist if he's all-powerful? And I am not here to tell you the answer to that question. <laughs> so, <laughs> but what I am going to tell you is this. I, we have n- numerous scenarios that we can look at. What about this one? What about this one? What about this one? I have them in my own life that I could talk about. But this is what we see with God. We see a God who doesn't just look at over human history and see the death and the pain and the troubles and trials that we go through. But we have a God that enters himself into that pain, that enters into the suffering and the pain of humanity. This is unique apart from every other religion. Christianity stands alone as the only religion that our God involves himself literally in the pain and hurt and final death for its people. That's, that's amazing. And, and that is what, that is what, I mean, we look at, we ask questions like this. How could an innocent person suffer? Friends, Christianity is founded on the death of the innocent one. It's, that's where we begin as Christians with the perfect, innocent Son of God. 
being crucified for us. That's where we start. And we ask these questions like, we have something to say to God. We have some kind of knowledge that overrides and, well, God, you need to look at this scenario. Let us look at the cross and look how God, our Father, out of his compassion and love for us, because God so loved the world that he gave his son and involved his son in our pain, in our troubles. So our God does not stand apart from it, but our God involves himself inside our pain and absorbs it, us who truly are guilty. None of us here stand innocent. None of us here stand without guilt. But Jesus, the one who truly is, is the one who actually enters in to the final pain and death and bears that spiritual pain and agony as well as physical. Unbelievable. And that's where our gospel starts. And that's where the power and plan of God roots itself. That's why God says, me, your redeemer, I'm going to do this in history because I want to set my exiles free. And isn't it interesting that we see, look at this little story of Cyrus. And God calls him my anointed one, my shepherd. And we see, we see the greater anointed one, right? We see the anointed one, Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, as John 10 tells us. Enter in, not only just to send people to rebuild, but Jesus himself promises that one day he will come again and rebuild this world. He will make all things new. We have that promise. So it's in a sense, Cyrus is a bit of a, of a prototype, a bit of a, a foreshadow of what Jesus is going to do all the more complete, though. Isn't that crazy? And I don't know, it's crazy. So we get into all that, but that, let's move on here. He, there's other word here. He says, we've obtained this inheritance. Look in, again in verse 11. We've obtained this inheritance. Now, some of your ver- versions, if you look, if you read your Bible, some of them may say we've become an inheritance or we uh, become a heritage. And now the translation of this verse is a little bit, uh, it could go either way, okay? So I'm not here to pick a side. But what it could do, it could say either you have become an inheritance for God, or it could say you've received an inheritance from God. Now, in both ways, the first way, it, it kind of ties in more of to the story of the Bible that Israel was God's treasured possession, the apple of his eye, the, uh, his, his valued um, inheritance. We see later in verse, in, in the same chapter, I think it's in verse 18. Um, yeah, it says, uh, and that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So we see, uh, we see confirmation to that view being that we have become this inheritance. And, and it's beautiful in that way because one thing it does is it takes the whole chapter of saying, you've been forgiven, you've been redeemed, you've been chosen You've been unified, all the reconciled. And then all of a sudden it turns perspective and said, now let's look at God. Let's look at God's plan. And, and it, it's beautiful in that way, in another way also, because it tells us, man, we become God's inheritance. We become, we become, we see this great value that God has in us, that God cherishes us, that God is, is so much so to say, man, this is what I am excited to receive one day, face to face, and I can see you face to face, and I can call you by name. Because then John says, it calls his, John 10, he says he calls his sheep by name. I mean, how beautiful is that, that God would see us as his own inheritance, his possession. That's a good thing. But also, we definitely see this too, that there's no doubt that Paul, in on, throughout his writings, he is into getting his, his people excited for what's to come. Excited about the, the next, um, 
uh, coming of Christ and this new life and redemption. I mean, are we not excited for that? I mean, sometimes you're just like, can it be now, God? Come on, man. I'm, like, I'm dying here. We can't wait to see you. And uh, that, that's there. And Paul, I think, would affirm that desire in, his, in his, uh, his people. I mean, okay, in Star Wars, episode four, okay? <laughs> it's the worst transition ever. Uh, in Star Wars, episode four, when, when uh, Tyler has no idea what I'm talking about because he's not American, hasn't watched Star Wars. So, okay. Um, in episode four, when, when Han Solo and Luke and, you know, the, the droids are stuck on the Death Star, right? And they're, uh, they all of a sudden see 3 PLs like, you know, oh my gosh, the princess is in um, cell block 1138, and uh, we, need to, we need to rescue her. And, and Han's like, I'm not going anywhere. You know, I'm not going anywhere. And then Luke's like, no, we need to rescue her. Like, she's, she's, she's we have to save her. She's going to be terminated. And, uh, and Han's like, well, forget it. I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. And, and Luke says, well, she's rich. And he's like, Rich? How rich? And he's like, more than you can imagine. And he's like, well, I can imagine quite a bit. And he's like, well, you'll get it. He's like, I better. You will. You know, okay. I know way too much. I know way too much of that story. But, okay, thank you for the applause. Uh, but listen to this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says this to his people, quoting Isaiah. Paul says, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Wow. You can't even imagine what God has in store for you. So I think when we look at these two views of inheritance, I think it can go both ways. I think we can very much be pleased the fact that God treasures us as his possession, his inheritance. In the same way, I think we can say, man, I can't wait for that inheritance. I can't wait. And now, in, in simply terms, it's this. We are his and he is ours. Isn't that beautiful? That he, he sees us as his own. And we see him as our own. It's this ownership. It's this, yeah, anyway, it's, it's beautiful. Um, and this, an inheritance, I mean, kind of move on through the, the text. He kind of ties this idea of inheritance. Because inheritance only goes to, to family, right? I mean, it only goes um, to someone that's tight with you and that, that knows you as, as blood. And, and we see Paul kind of tie that in. Look at verse, um, with me in verse, uh, verse 13. Okay, we're in 12, 12 and 13. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So Paul right here in 12 is saying, saying we, he's kind of tying in us Jews. Us Jews who are the first to hope in Christ will be to the praise of his glory. And then in him, 13, you also... You Gentiles, in other words, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So he starts with, he starts with himself saying, us Jews, the story of the Jews, how God has chosen these people, the smallest of the nations. I mean, you could look at Deuteronomy 7 or 8. And God, God set, set his love on them. Because he loved him. That was his reason. <laughs> He's like, I love you because I love you. And you're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. And, but that's what's so beautiful about the love of God is there's nothing that we do to inherit it or nothing we do to spur it on. He simply loves you because he loves you. I still don't understand. You won't. You won't until you see him face to face. Maybe then you might. I don't know. Can't make any promises there. But, uh, 
it's a beautiful thing. And, and so Paul is saying, us Jews who were the first to hope in God, and then he's saying, you who believed, who trusted in the gospel, he received the seal of the Spirit. Okay, now, this is what's going on. Paul right here is combining this lofty idea that God is a God who plans all things in history, has control over all of humanity. There's nothing outside of his grip. There's nothing where he's like, whoa, how did that happen? Uh, Our God is that. But then at the same time, Paul says, and you who believed, you who trusted, you who decided towards Christ, you who made that choice to say, I want to follow him. I want to give my life to him. He says, you've been sealed. And so this is, this is really beautiful because he's combining these two almost opposing ideas, right? Wait, you can't have a God who's all sovereign and then us who can choose. But right here we see, we see God mysteriously but beautifully combining these two. But we don't live in a fatalistic world where it does not matter what we do. But we live in a world, and we don't live in the other stream where we, our choices are the absolute authority and God's hoping we choose the right thing. Oh, Please, I hope God is not hoping that I choose the right thing. Like, we're doomed, okay? You know, at least I am. And, uh, but what I've seen in my own life is God taking my mess-ups, my sins, and using them to, to, to change me and work on me and, and, and get me and, and, and grow me. And I'm in this process, okay? And I think we all are. I think we could sit up here for a long time and I could hear story after story from you guys about how God has worked through your lives, through your failures, through your sins, and then how God is, is, is changing you and has, has glorified himself in that. I think we could. And some of you who are in it right now, and you're like, I'm in the pits right now, man. I, I, don't, I don't see any hope, any glory. I don't see any of these, these cute words you're talking about. Uh, it's like this. I think it's, it's like when you stand, oh, gum wall wouldn't work, but like a, a mural, you know, so, this giant mural. And you're standing right on the wall. And you're like, I don't see it. It's just gross. I don't, I don't know what's going on here. It's a bunch of weird colors. And you step back. You're like, oh, all right. It's a giant fish with a rainbow over it or something. You know, and you, you see it. You're like, wow, look at that. And, and I think that's a bit of how we will be when we come face to face with Jesus. We'll see that completed work. And we say, this didn't make much sense. I don't understand what happened here. But, I, but now, man, I can see the beauty of God's plan. When we read books like Job, uh, we, read thing, we read and we have this pers- heavenly perspective, right? And we look down and we see how, how God is working and, and, and uh, how he's allowing things to happen. Even saying to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Pointing him out to Satan. Crazy thing. Sorry if I opened a can right there. Um, but we've seen... That God is over these things. And we have this perspective of the whole book. And, and we get to see the, And we know where it's going. But imagine Job in that face, facing the scenarios that he was in. A lot of this could have been like, is God good? And he's asking these questions, right? Is God just that he would do this to me? And then we see, man, that this wasn't about Job and his righteousness. This was about Job needing to learn to hear from God. About learning to hear from the voice of God. And that's what he learned. And at the end of the days, he said, who am I to speak? Woe is me. He, he is he's on his face because he's, 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 he's a process of learning. Okay, now I'm getting so off track. But we, we see this, we see this in, in our lives where God is working certain scenarios. 
And, and we may not understand it right now, but man, he's working toward, toward his plan, toward his glory. Um, yeah. And so it's both our choices and, our, and God's work. Now, this is a beautiful thing. I need to wrap this up pretty soon here, but here we go. God is, is right here saying, those who believed, those who received the gospel and trusted in it, they were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So it's this, it's this idea that God is putting his mark on his possession, on his people, saying, you now are mine, and, and this is who you are. It's, in other words, it's saying, you have a new identity, and your, my spirit is going to be the one that is going to remind you of it and remind you who you are. Isn't that the question we're always asking, or always, uh, in, in a sense, working out in our lives? Who am I? Who, what am I doing here? What's my major? Where am I going with my life? What kind of parent am I? We're asking these identity questions. And right here with Paul, in the great plan of God, he zooms in and says, my Holy Spirit is going to be here to say, this is who you are. You're sealed. You, my, my presence is literally going to be with you. Uh, that's the promise of the Holy Spirit. But now this is the thing. That is not the only promise of the Holy Spirit. And some people like to just stay there. They'll say, okay, the Spirit has sealed me. I know who I am. The Spirit, something like that. I don't know. It's there. I don't know anything other than that. And I know that I'm a child of God. You know, you read passages like Romans. If the Spirit of him, who, oh, I'm sorry, wrong, wrong. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then heirs and heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. You know, we, we look at verses like that. We're like, okay, the Spirit confirms our identity. But when we look through the book of Ephesians, and I'm not going to, you know, we're going to unpack all these later, but just listen to this. I'm just going to fire off a handful from Ephesians. In Ephesians 2.18, it says, We have access in one spirit to the Father. 2.22, We are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Being built up. 3.5, The mystery of Christ revealed by the Spirit. Wisdom, okay? 3.16, Strengthened with power through the Spirit. I think that's actual physical power. I think God is physically enabling Christians to live supernatural lives, okay? To, to overcome, uh, to, to pray over someone and ask for them to be healed. And the Spirit of God may touch them and may heal them. I mean, we're, when we, okay, okay go, moving on. 4.3, walk in unity of the Spirit. 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for redemption. The Holy Spirit is a person, has feelings. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit because you are sealed. There we get it, have it again, sealed for redemption. I love that. We'll, we'll kind of finish with that. Uh, and 518, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, rather than being drunk, let's be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, 617, give, uh, given the, the sword of the Spirit, the word that is breathed and Spirit applied. And 618, prayer enabled by the Spirit. So as you see this, it's more than just God saying, mine. And that's good and glorious, right? Like, stamp me, God. Seal me. Assure me of who I am. But beyond that, I want to see the Holy Spirit work out in my life, in my prayer, in my ministering, the way I treat my wife. I want to see the Holy Spirit give me discernment and wisdom. In the same way, I want to have the joy of getting to pray over someone and see them heal and, and glorify God in that miracle and say, wow, God has given us his spirit so that these things are not impossible. Isn't that cool? That God's given us that, um, that spirit. So, and then it finishes with this. And I'll, and I'll close here because I know we may need to finish somewhat soon. 
He says this. Look at the end of 14 with me. The Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is this guarantee to God saying, I have not abandoned you. That my presence, in the same way that Jesus was with his disciples, says, and he's going away. So I was like, wait, wait, Jesus, where, whoa, where are you going? Don't worry. I'm sending my spirit, my helper, to be with you, to remind you of all the things that I said. So that the spirit of God would work not only through his word, but enable us as believers to live holy lives. To live these lives that we're called to live. That we're not, in other words, we're not on our own. That the, the Holy Spirit is here. And, and, and this is the thing. And Paul says, we, until we acquire possession of it. That means it's here, but it's, it's, it's a process. It's not quite here. It's not, we haven't fully received the possession and received Jesus back, right? We have right now the Spirit who helps us and points us to Christ. But yet, we're still longing for it, right? We still haven't experienced that fullness of redemption. Like Paul would say in Romans 8, he's saying, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit long, long for redemption of creation, but not only us, but all of creation is longing for this. What do you have in common with your neighbor? I think we're all, we're all longing for redemption. I think we all are longing for it, but us who have received the Spirit, God has given us given us a vision and clarity to see redemption comes through Jesus Christ. And as, I mean, guys like Stephen, but as he had such boldness to preach against opposition and preach God's word, as he was on his back being stoned, he looks into the heavens and sees the glory of God. And it says being filled with the Holy Spirit, he saw the glory of God. The Holy Spirit, friends, at the end of the day, and all these things is to show us these deep, mighty, awesome, beautiful truths about salvation so that God would be glorified. So this is all about God getting the glory. At the end of the day, the gospel is about God. It involves us. Who did Jesus die for? Us. But at the end of the day, Jesus died to glorify his Father. Jesus says, moments before he's going to go to the cross, what should I say to this hour? Father, save me? By no means, Father, accomplish your purpose. Glorify your name. In John 12, Jesus himself had a view of his Father's glory. And even in his prayer over us in John 17, he's saying, Father, I desire to be with you in the glory that we had before the foundations of the earth. And you could, I could go on and on and on, pointing out to us to see the, the, the desire of God is to show off his fame for us. In other words, we gather here, friends, to resound and praise and glorify God. That is why we're gathered and we celebrate our salvation. We celebrate the Holy Spirit being with us. We celebrate our forgiveness. All these things, yes, 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 yes. But at the end of the day, if they don't don't point toward the glory of God, we've made this about us and we've become just like every other organization that's self-help. At the end of the day, we point to Jesus and say, look at how glorious our God is. Look at how glorious our God is to come into our world, enter our pain, and bear our sin, rescue us from our exile. And at the end of the day, we say, glory be to God. Amen? I'm going to pray. We invite the worship team back up, and we're going to glorify God. Uh, we're also...
If you're a believer here, we invite you to partake of the communion. If you're gluten-free like myself, boom, you are loved and blessed here. Please remember Jesus and his blood and body broken for you. Straight back if you're normal like everyone else right over there. Um, Let's pray. God, we love you. Jesus, we glorify you. You're so good. You're so good, God. These people here gathered because of you, God, because of what you've done in history. And that your story goes from thousands of years till now, and it's still going. And God, you've involved us, and I don't know how many years we've got here, God. But Lord, you've involved us in this city in this time. And so God, I pray that as you have purpose in all that you do, that that would inspire us to have that same purpose, that same pursuit of of seeing people come to know you, seeing people saved, loving our neighbors, loving the people that, that hate us. God, I pray that we would live radically because you're a sovereign God, because you have a plan. So God, just stir us up. Stir us up by your spirit. Stir us up in your word. Remind us of who you are, Jesus. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your victory. We worship you right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.